welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of the Crown on the application of SC, CB and A children and the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. The citation for this case is 2021 UKSC 26. And the case that we're looking at this week is all about child tax credit and the way that it operates in the UK. So let's begin by giving a brief rundown of how it works. At its most basic, child tax credit is a welfare system designed to support families with children. There is an individual element, a family element and disability element. But today we will only be focusing on the individual element that entitles a person to £2,830 per year for each child they are responsible for. However, by virtue of section 93A and 3B of the Tax Credits Act 2002, the benefit is limited to the amount payable in respect of two children, something that is colloquially referred to as the two-child limit. In this case, the appellants brought a case against the government because they claim that this limit is incompatible with the right to family life under Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, as were read with the Prohibition of Discrimination and Article 14. That claim was dismissed at first instance, and then by the Court of Appeal, so the appellants now bring their arguments to the Supreme Court, which is where we pick things up. The justices made a lot of points when discussing this case, but we can start with the two convention articles that are discussed, 8 and 14. The argument around the right to family life was that the two-child limit affected reproductive choices by discouraging adults to have families of only two children and less. However, the court rejected this by noting that limiting family sizes was not an intended consequence of the law, and there was no evidence that the legislation was actually having this effect. In a similar vein, it was argued by the claimants that it would be more difficult for third and then subsequent children to be integrated into a family if their parents were not entitled to child tax credit, but once again there was no hard evidence that this was the case. Moving on, in Article 14 is interesting because the discrimination has to sit within another right, and here it was argued that the discrimination existed either within Article 8, or alternatively the right to property, under Article 1 of the first protocol to the Convention. Here the claimants at least got off to a good start, because it was accepted that the law could be indirectly discriminatory towards women, because women made up 90% of the single parents who raised children. Furthermore, there was a possibility of indirect discrimination against children who grew up in households with more than two children, and would be impacted by the two-child limit. However, the court would go on to explore three separate issues before concluding that the two-child limit could be justified, and this is what we're going to look at now. The first interesting point made by the claimants was that the two-child limit was a breach of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, but the problem here is that although that treaty has been ratified, it has not been incorporated into UK domestic law. This offered up an opportunity for Lord Reed to deal with an interesting constitutional point, as he reiterated that we live in a dualist state, and therefore incorporation is required. For those of you who are not as familiar with the finer details of international law, we can use another treaty as an example. The UK originally joined the EU by signing an international treaty, but that only became official when Parliament passed the European Communities Act. The same thing can be said about the process for leaving. In other words, the UK can ratify the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, but unless Parliament does something about it, 
that means very little. Previously in the Supreme Court, Lord Wilson had hinted at the convention being relevant when considering the validity of delegated legislation. But here in this case, Lord Reed made it clear that he fundamentally disagreed with that approach. The second issue was around the concept of proportionality, and in particular the approach that the court should take. Ideally, they should not be overly prescriptive or mechanical, and when questions of economic and social policy are involved, the member state should be given a wide margin of appreciation by only finding against a legal measure if it is manifestly without reasonable foundation. It is only in so-called suspect cases that the courts would apply a higher standard, and that is where more serious grounds of discrimination are involved, such as gender or race, and in those circumstances the measure would require very weighty reasons in order for it to be justified instead. Unfortunately, this line is pretty blurry, and a court has to make a decision based on the facts of each individual case. Then, the third and final issue is about how parliamentary material is used by the courts, and how that usage lines up with the principle of parliamentary privilege. Once again, Lord Reed took a pretty narrow approach here by following the decision in Wilson and First County Trust Limited from 2003 and noting that parliamentary material should only be used to try and ascertain or confirm the purpose of legislation. In a human rights context, this means that the courts should not get into the weeds of any debate that went on in Parliament, but really just look at whether consideration was given to compatibility with the Convention. Bringing these three points together, the Supreme Court came to the conclusion that the two-child limit was justified. Because this policy did concern gender discrimination, it was a suspect case, but Lord Reed felt that it could be justified on grounds of economic policy, even after applying the very weighty reasons standard. His reasoning was based on the very real link between the two-child policy and the economic aim of reducing public expenditure. Women will naturally be more impacted by such a policy because of their prominence in single-parent households. In a similar fashion, the justices also found that the discrimination against children in larger households could be justified, and was perhaps even slightly easier to justify because it was not a suspect case, although it was still necessary to consider what would be in the best interests of the children impacted. Ultimately, Lord Reed reflected on the democratic credentials of the measure and did not see a reason to overturn the decision of Parliament. Overall, this judgment is pretty problematic from start to finish, and might well end up being remembered as one of the most significant judgments of the Reed Court. A unanimous judgment in which the President pontificated on the virtues of the government, and roundly attacked the work of campaigning organisations. It was also written and handed down at a time when the government was considering what to include in its controversial Judicial Review and Courts Bill, and it was suggested that this pandering judgment and others like it from the Reed Court, were big reasons why the content of that bill was turned down so much. Tim Sayer, a tutor at Birmingham University, disputed this and tweeted, quote, Any view that Lord Reed's judgment in the Crown on the application of SC is heavily influenced by judicial-slash-executive politics needs to take a look back at his Article 14 decision. He's been very consistent, end quote. Sadly, I think this misses the point. Fine, Lord Reed may have been consistent over the years when it comes to the legal interpretation of Article 14, and that is arguably a good quality to have, but the way in which this speech offers almost sycophantic deference to the government and rails against pressure groups is disturbing. 
Paragraph 162 is worth reading in full, but he talks about these groups which, quote, lobbied unsuccessfully against the measure when it was being considered in Parliament, and then act as solicitors for persons affected by the legislation, or otherwise support legal challenges brought in their names, as a means of continuing their campaign, end quote. To try and guess the motivation for a legal challenge is inappropriate for a judge, and even if a judicial review does help as part of a campaign, that doesn't affect the legal case. Who knows, these groups might also want to ensure that single mothers can afford to feed their children a proper meal and put a roof over their head. What Lord Reed fails to understand is the way in which democracy operates in this country. Of course Parliament is elected, and the decisions that it takes ought to be accorded due respect, but other things have their own role to play as well. That includes campaigning groups who offer alternative views on policy. It includes international treaties, such as the European Convention on Human Rights, that has been incorporated into domestic law, and the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child that has not. And it also includes the courts themselves, which are not there to simply uphold the actions of the government, but to ensure that it does act within the limits of its power. Lord Reed's narrow judgment here suggests that he needs reminding of this fact. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. Quick reminder before we go that if you would like to support the podcast and help to keep it ad-free, then you can subscribe to my newsletter and earn yourself some nice perks, including more content from me each week, and a free ebook on how to answer essay questions on a law degree. If that sounds like something you're interested in, then check out the link in the description to this podcast episode. Anyway, I'll be back with another episode next week, so for now, bye!